Hi everyone, today on the podcast I'm joined by Dr. Alex Peach, um, who teaches at Durham University. Um, how are you doing today, Alex? Pretty good, thanks. Not too bad. Mustn't grumble. Um, <laughs> had a very, very busy term. I'm looking forward to the, to the Easter break, but yeah, all good. Yeah, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to holidays as well. Um, so today I wanted to ask you some questions about your research um, and then maybe a bit also about like how you came to do research at Durham and some other things. Sure. So I guess to start with, um, how did you get into doing sort of gravity-based research? So, yeah, so it's kind of a long um, story, I guess, but I think, yeah, so I can kind of pinpoint that there was a particular moment in the transition between my second and third year when I got particularly switched on about um, theoretical physics research um, and that was when I was I had a supervisor meeting um, with Professor Chongson Chu, who's no longer at Durham. Um, but this was for uh, sort of a pre-project meeting um, for my bachelor's project in my third year, which was going to be a project on non-commutative geometry and string theory. And that was the moment when I was kind of exposed to this whole story of us trying to unify quantum physics with gravitational physics. And that was the thing that really sort of switched me on. Um, and more or less from the day, I was like, yeah, okay, this, this, this is what I want to do. Um, before that, my studies had been kind of, you know, I knew I liked physics, I knew I liked maths, I knew that I wanted to do maybe something with it, wasn't quite sure, but that was the day when I was like, yes, this is where I want to do um, theory from this point. So, so from there, um, I finished my bachelor's and I studied uh, general relativity in the maths department, which was fantastic and helped improve my handwriting considerably, is what I always tell people. Um, then I studied my master's, uh, the master's in particle strings and cosmology, which is offered by the Centre for Particle Theory here. And that allowed me to learn a lot about, you know, a lot more in detail about you know, aspects of modern theoretical physics, including general relativity, quantum field theory, string theory, stuff like that. I was originally really switched on by uh, string theory. So th this was, as I mentioned, the topic of my bachelor's project. And so wanting to understand sort of quantum gravity, broadly speaking, is what I've been trying to do basically ever since through my research and through reading and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, you mentioned that like idea of trying to like reconcile quantum mechanics and and gravity. Uh, it's quite a like grand grand idea, isn't it? You know, yeah. like making everything into one nice, yeah. neat Absolutely. thing that plays nice. But, <laughs> I, I do wonder if like it's any it's something that we'll actually ever do. Or maybe we'll just keep running into more and more problems. Yeah. I mean in a way it's it's not so much a case of we'll hear a two disparate paradigms and okay. you know they that could just work well on their own. I mean they do seem to work extremely well within their respective regimes, but it's more a case of there being sort of an, in, a fundamental incompatibility between the two. And this is you could draw a parallel here with the the incongruity that was that Einstein and others noticed when they were thinking about Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism and they said, well, according to Maxwell's theory, you can never catch up to a light wave, whereas Newtonian mechanics would say that there should always be, you know, no matter how fast something is moving, there should always, it should always make sense that you should be able to catch up to it such that it stops moving. And that was essentially what led to special relativity. So the, 
yeah, what, what I think really intrigues me is that there is this fundamental, there seems to be this fundamental incompatibility between our understanding of gravity in terms of classical theory of general relativity and quantum mechanics. And, you know, these, these incompatibilities seem very deep and it seems like, you know, it's going to be a really, you know, game-changing um, quest, if you like, to understand how you can reconcile these um, differences. Mm. Yeah, what you said about how um, like special relativity was derived from those two postulates for um, light constancy and like mm. laws of physics being the same in different reference frames. Like, yeah. I, I think it's so like interesting how like something so powerful can be found just from like you know those those two kind of postulates and by just working through the theory, like derived so much. Mm. Like, I guess that like I'm not sure if I want to do sort of experimental or theoretical physics. But like, and the that, 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 like when I think about that, I just think like, yeah, theory can be really cool. <laughs> it is really cool. I think historically speaking, there's a lot of economy in trying to solve incompatibilities between you know disparate theories. You know, electricity and magnetism as separate phenomena no longer you know make sense when you when you think about it. You know, you have to combine them into one thing and. You know, um, similarly with just combining, you know, j just the, the the simple observation to us that the force that governs the laws of motion of planets and stars is the same as the laws of motion that governs, you know, the motion of us and everyday objects around us. It's it's gravitation. So you know, it's this sort of desire to 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 unify seems to be quite a powerful. Principle, guiding principle in the history of the development of physics pretty much you know since its inception and going back all the way to classical antiquity and so on so to me it's a very interesting thing to to, to look for sort of if you will proverbial chinks in the armour that you want to try and um, address okay uh, going back to more kind of your career now um, do you have any like particular reason for staying like you studied your undergraduate degree at Durham yeah. right do you have any particular reason for staying here as opposed to going somewhere else? So the long, the short story is Durham is very difficult to leave. <laughs> um, I remember I distinctly remember having a conversation in I think my third year with uh, Simon Ross, a professor in the maths department, during which he said, "Well, for your masters and for your PhD, you should really try to go somewhere else because it's a good experience and you're exposed to new new faces, new ideas, etc." And a few years later, he became my PhD supervisor. <laughs> so um, I, I didn't, you know, the, the, the initial plan of hoping to transcend uh, Durham never, never succeeded. But actually, um, from pretty much my third year, I kind of fell in love with Durham and thought it was, you know, it's a beautiful place. It's a, it's a wonderful community. It's a perfect combination of, you know, it's a very, um, you know, incredibly diverse um, academic Population, but at the same time, it's it's very quiet. It's, so it's got the sort of, you know, Oxford Cambridge esque kind of quaintness to it. Um, yeah, and I guess staying at Durham just allowed me to follow, you know, a logical progression of things that I was most interested in. So the particular course, the master's course that they offered here, sounded incredibly interesting to me uh, was exactly what I wanted to do and I actually dropped out of the four-year program to, uh, down to the three-year program specifically to do this particular master's that was particularly interesting um, 
And then the same with the, with the PhD. It was a case of, well, I made several PhD applications, got the offer from Durham, and then was like, well, this is a PhD in physics offer from Durham. You know, I can't really, really turn this down. And, um, yeah, and obviously I'm really glad I didn't because, you know, I had a really good time on the PhD and the research was really interesting. And, um, yeah, it's led me to where I am now, so... Yeah, I think Durham really is like a very nice place. Like yeah. when, when I'm walking here and I like pass over the, the like the river at night, like highlight of my day. Yeah, <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. I think C.S. Lewis is apocryphally attributed as apparently having fainted in awe at Durham Cathedral. So wow, yeah. So yeah, I don't think I've quite quite got there yet. But yeah, Durham is absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful place to live. Yeah, I'm intrigued that you um, like wanted to do a four-year course and then switched three years because mm-hmm. like I kind of applied, I applied to do a four-year course and that's what I'm on paper doing now. Mm-hmm. But only recently like did I realise actually like I could apply to do a master's somewhere else mm-hmm. or yeah, something. Absolutely. So it's interesting that you decided to drop out of that and do a master's still at Durham anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, it was a case of just following my interests and I would, broadly speaking, I would recommend that that should be what what any, you know, any student should, should try to follow their interests, basically. In my second year, for example, I, you know, um, wanted to... S- I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do at the end of this degree? Maybe, you know, a lot of physicists and mathematicians end up going into sort of finance. So maybe I'll take a statistics module just to to see what that's all about. And for me, that was a very bad decision because I didn't particularly enjoy the module. I didn't do very well in the end of the module. Just barely passed, in fact. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed my degree much more once I was focusing purely on the things that I was most interested in and that I think is why you know as you progress through the years in your degree when you're permitted increasing specialization that you end up enjoying what you do a lot more because it's a lot more of the things you want mm. yeah um yeah like the stuff we like at uni level is so hard I think I'd be able to do it if I like didn't actually enjoy it mm-hmm. absolutely um, absolutely it's incredibly difficult if, if you love it then it just comes naturally you'll do the work because you love it but if not then yeah it's you know and it's not for everybody for sure mm. yeah I've been thinking of um, switching from doing a pure physics theory to actually doing physics and maths right because um, like I've, I've been sh- like really surprised at how much I enjoyed the maths I've been doing this year mm-hmm. but I've been a bit concerned that that might sort of limit my prospects for going into physics research Especially on like the experimental side. Yeah. If I don't do like lab modules and things like that. Yeah, I mean, this, it's a good question. I mean, I, I tend to think that wherever your interests lie, whatever you end up wanting to actually do, if there are any kind of gaps, you'll fill the gaps yourself. If, if that makes sense. So, I mean, if, if it turns out that you, you know, you lock yourself into, you know, doing physics and maths and not doing much on the experimental side, you'll, if you're really interested in the experimental side, you'll naturally, you know, look into that in your own time and you'll, you'll figure out a way to make it work, basically. Yeah, okay. I guess that makes sense. Like, I have been, like, applying to, like, research patients and stuff. Not that I get <laughs> any back as a first year, but, you know, hopefully second year I'll be able to find something like that. But, yeah. Okay. Um, I've read that as part of your research, you like, look into the holographic principle. Yes. Yeah, could you talk about that a bit? 
So the holographic principle um, is a conjecture. It was originally put forward, I believe, by Leonard Susskind and Gerard Toft, um, two of the most famous um, living physicists. And broadly speaking, it follows from thinking about the laws of black hole thermodynamics and what it essentially... Okay, so so to give you a bit of the, the prior context, so in the 70s, Hawking and Bekenstein showed that a black hole has an injury proportional to the area of its event horizon. And that's a bit weird because if you think about a cup of coffee, for example, it's made of, you know, uh, it consists of a load of atoms all jiggling about and the the thermodynamic entropy associated with that cup of coffee basically should count the number of atoms which scales with the volume. So we typically think of entropy as scaling with extensively with the volume of a system yeah. but for the so for the entropy of a black hole to scale like the area of its horizon seems a little bit counterintuitive very strange um, and but essentially Einstein's theory of general relativity turns us that there's an inevitability to, to black hole formation in the sense that if you take a bounded region of space and if you chuck in a sufficient amount of mass then you will eventually create a black hole that's kind of inevitable but on the other hand, we also know from thermodynamics that if you know the entropy of any macroscopic process always increases, and so basically there's there's this interplay between these two things, wherein if you try to uh, smash, uh, if you take a, a bounded region of space and fill it with matter, and that matter has a certain entropy associated with it, which scales with the volume. And if you collapse that matter to form a black hole, the entropy now becomes the en entropy of the black hole, which goes like the area of the, the black hole. And for that to be thermodynamically possible, the entropy has to go up, basically. It can't decrease. And so what that infers is that, well, the entropy of the matter that you had in the first place didn't really go with the volume. It actually goes with the area of the region that it was contained in. And that's very weird. And basically, so the garble, the boiled-down version, um, so the holographic conjecture, says that based on this effective bound, entropy bound, that the amount of information that you can contain with any bounded region of space is proportional to the area of the boundary and not the volume. So it's very weird. So Sabina Hosenfelder um, provided a really nice analogy for this. I don't know if it was her analogy originally, but I read it in her blog, which is, <clears throat> if you imagine a, uh, you've got a load of Lego and a Lego box, you think, okay, well, imagine you've got a load of little Lego bits that are all the same size and you want to figure out how many you can fit into the box. Now, intuitively, the answer is obvious. It depends on the volume of the box. The number of bits you could fit into the box just depends on the volume. The holographic principle is basically saying that if you were to make those bits of Lego smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and then repeat the process, what you would end up finding is that the number of bits you can fit in actually depends on the area of the edge of the box and not the volume contained inside. That is, like, in a nutshell, captures the intuition that the holographic conjecture sort of um, implies. So would that be, like, the area of, like, the, the service area of yes, the box? Yes, exactly, the service okay. area of the box. That's quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah, so it is, it is incredibly weird, but it, see, it sort of seems very reasonable to the extent that this entropy-bound argument that I presented seems to make sense. And that relies on things that are very 
seem to be incredibly fundamental to physics, namely that in Einstein's theory of relativity, black hole formation is inevitable if you chuck in, you know, enough matter energy into a region of space. On the, on, on the other hand, entropy has to increase in any macroscopic process. And it seems that those two things just kind of very naturally lead to this, um, to this very, very interesting conjecture. It's unproven, I should say, um, but it follows, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so to reiterate, it does follow from these kind of core tenets of uh, fundamental physics that we have very good reason to trust. And it is as such believed to be a fundamental feature of any candidate theory of quantum gravity. So this has become kind of a benchmark for, you know, model building in, in quantum gravity. So string theory should be consistent with this holographic conjecture. Loop quantum gravity should be consistent with this um, holographic conjecture, for example. So it's become quite a powerful diagnostic tool in that sense. Okay, so is it kind of like how um, the postulates of special relativity kind of lead to all that? So has there been, like you said it's unproven, but has there been like any experimental sort of evidence to support it? As far as I'm aware, no, and I suppose there's a very good reason for that, because, well, naively, in order to um, to reach the, sort of saturate the entropy bound, the amount of information you would need, um, you would basically need to resolve length scales that are kind of comparable to the Planck length. So, for example, if we go back to the Lego box analogy, which is quite useful, if you imagine that the bits of Lego are literally about the size of, you know, a fingernail or something, which is reasonable, then the entropy bound that you would find very much looks like the volume law that you're used to. And I mentioned that if you were to cut these Lego bits up continually, you would eventually find that the bound that you get is actually... Um, determined by the area of the box but first of all you have to be able to cut things down to those tiny length scales and the length scales where it would start to become significant is precisely this plank length which is about 10 to the minus 35 metres if I remember correctly and that is a length scale that we can't hope to resolve you know, with anything like the current collider technology that we have for example so Naively speaking, you would essentially need to be able to probe length scales on the order of the Planck length in order to resolve this effect, at least in, in, a, in a naive sense. However, there might be sort of catches and loopholes um, that, you know, the, some of the um, predictions of quantum gravity might end up having some ramifications on, say, cosmological scales where we wouldn't necessarily expect them to appear. You could have some kind of mixing of Planck length scale and cosmological scale physics um, in some novel way that could make some aspect of it observable. Um, but this, again, this is all very, very speculative. So the short answer is no. The long answer is, well, no, but it could turn up in a sort of unexpected place. Okay, yeah, I think it's um, interesting how you said that uh, it gets to do with a kind of scale of the things that you're putting yeah. in this box, whatever. Like, it's like how, um, like with gravity, and like everyday scales you can say no you know mgh and all that mm -hmm. and then different scales you need like newtonian gravity yes. but then eventually that stops working and you yeah. do things like general relativity and then but then when you when i think about things like general relativity like curving space time i like i, I think i kind of get how that works with like the motion of planets yeah and then when i think of like dropping my bottle yeah like how does how does the 
curving with space time make that happen. Yeah. I, did, I did really fun. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly counterintuitive concept. You know, one of the one of the weird marvels of, of modern physics. Um, actually, there's a, there's a really good um, channel on YouTube called Science Click. And they have some really, really nice visualizations, particularly for concepts in general relativity. I really recommend checking those out. Because okay. um, in particular, there's a really nice animation where it shows how, well, because uh, essentially mass energy is curving, not just space, but space time, then the result of that is that ge the sort of geodesics or the paths that um, the, the motions that objects uh, undergo are such that they gravitate towards sources of mass energy. So there's some really nice animations on that on that channel that I recommend checking out. Okay. Um, I think I also read something about how you use like tensors in yes. your research. Could you talk about that? Uh, like maybe also could you explain a bit on like what tensors actually are? Yeah. So this so. The tensors as a mathematical concept are, are an, a key example of what we call the threshold concept. You need to, which in the in the teaching lingo means you really need to understand it carefully before <laughs> you can really understand like general relativity and okay. stuff. So tensors, broadly speaking, alludes to. Um, so basically, they generalize a notion of linear maps between vector spaces. And you can basically represent their components as matrices. So there's a sense, there's a very superficial sense in which tensors sort of are like higher dimensional matrices in a way. But, it's, but there, is a, there is a crucial difference. Yeah, so essentially tensors, um, in particular applied to uh, Riemannian geometry, um, entails the formalism in which classical general relativity is expressed. So it's a really fundamental uh, concept for dealing with um, key objects in general relativity, such as manifolds and vector fields, um, and just generally tensor fields defined on manifolds. Um, yeah, so you can sort of think of a tensor as a vector that lives in a product space. That's sort of the most garbled way that I would think of it. Um, but it's an elementary concept that is that is crucial for doing um, Riemannian geometry in a way that allows you to express and understand sort of the Einstein equations. Okay, I'm going to pretend like I understood half okay. of it. Okay, no, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, because because we're only talking, I can't draw anything on the board, which mm. would, could otherwise be very useful. Yeah, maybe in the future I should get a camera too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I could draw something and you could try describing it to you. Really <laughs> with that. Mm. I think that I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But. Yeah. Okay, uh, I guess we can talk about um, like kind of how scientific ideas change with time and like how... Um, like we've gone from like sort of Newtonian gravity to Einstein's relativity, but now we have like problems like dark matter and dark energy that sort of suggests that like you know we need like an even better sort of theory perhaps. Um, well, yeah, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, so I mean historically, you know, trying to understand gravity and light very succinctly speaking, is basically what has generated all of modern physics in, in essence. You can follow the story of light right from, you know, trying, people trying to understand, you know, or just, just formulating geometric optics um, 
you know, back during I think I think it was uh, was it Euclid who started to um, formulate elements of geometric optics. I forget. Um, yeah, and similarly with 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 gravity, going right back to Aristotle's theory of just things trying to find their natural place, which you know, although by modern standards is okay, we can just sit back and say it's ridiculous. But back then, it was an effective tool. Um, so yeah, by by following the development of these two um, essentially two key areas that essentially motivated all of all of quantum physics, and yeah, so we're currently in a state where you know there are observed phenomena that seem to uh, contradict the predictions of you know current prevailing theories so for example as you mentioned the phenomena of dark energy and dark matter are not necessarily compatible with um, the sort of um, the assumptions that general relativity works and that the only matter in the universe is the matter that we can observe and so Similarly, there have been similar junctures in in history where we've had some phenomena that we can't apparently explain with our current understanding of gravity, and the two options are well, the understanding of gravity is wrong and has to change, or maybe there's some extra matter uh, that we can't see that that could potentially explain what we observe. And um, I think probably the most poignant example of that is um, uh, so Urban Leverrier in the 1800s. Uh, noticed the precession of Mercury and postulated that, well, you know, well, he, it, it was known that basically this precession of Mercury wasn't consistent with Newton's laws of gravity uh, and also considering the, the planets that we could observe. And so the options were, well, either Newtonian gravity isn't right or there must be some extra matter in the form of a planet there that we can't see and he named it Vulcan. And so you could argue that we're in a similar position today where, you know, we have some phenomena attributed to dark matter such as galaxy rotation curves and um, gravitational lensing. On, on in, so gravitational lensing in general is a prediction of general relativity, but the magnitude of the observed lensing um, requires there to be um, additional mass or gravity basically misbehaving somehow. <laughs> And so, yeah, we're, we're at a similar position where it could be the case that, well, maybe dark matter does exist, and there are a lot of people at Durham that you know whose careers are essentially staked on the fact that dark matter does exist. And we, we I mean, there is a lot of evidence to support that um, the particle, the sort of standard model of cosmology, this lambda CDM, um, which involves this particle model of dark matter, does work very, very well at describing a whole range of cosmological observations. However, the sort of economy of that paradigm is potential. I mean, yeah, so potentially being challenged by, you know, newer developments in sort of relativistic theories of modified gravity, which are now also being able to reproduce some of these key results in cosmology, such as the damping of the CMB and correctly predicting galaxy rotation curves and things like that. So... But really, we don't know if there is um, particle dark matter. You know, it's it, is it just a particle? As in, you know, is there just a field? As in, a f- the field of the sun, the, the kind of fields that appear in the standard model of particle physics that corresponds to dark matter. And the answer is, well, we don't currently know, but people are trying to find out with, you know, um, very very. Um, you know, isolated cold environments where you know you might hypothetically detect a particle of dark matter every you know few months or something like that. 
So we may yet find out that, that you know it is particle dark matter, but it could also be true that you know our understanding of gravity needs to change. But this isn't a new idea, as I've said. Um, people have been considering modif appro modified approaches to, to to gravity for quite a long time now. Um, yeah, I guess that's 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 what I would say is that we think it's dark, we think it's just particle dark matter, but we don't know, and it may it could still be the case that it isn't. It may be that we need a total revision in our understanding of gravitational physics, and if history is anything to go by, then that's probably where I would put a, a more substantial portion of my proverbial money. <laughs> You didn't do any actual gambles on it. <laughs> there, there are there are people who have um, made bets really <laughs> um, about physics. Yeah, I think um, Leonard Susskind and Stephen Hawking um, had some kind of bet as to whether the black hole information paradox would be resolved or not. Um, and I think Leonard Susskind actually won the bet. But then, I th yeah, I, I, I'm not. Compl I can't completely remember all the details of that at the moment. But yeah, people do have bets. Uh. Um, yeah, what you what you what you were saying kind of um, reminded me of um, what you mentioned when I talked to you about this sometime previously. Yeah. With, um, like, it makes me think of um, sort of idea of a luminiferous ether. Yeah. Like it was thought like light propagated through, whereas nowadays with like relativity, like the idea is kind of um, like made moot. Like we don't think light needs any medium mm -hmm. to travel through. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's quite interesting how sort of scientific ideas can change with time yeah absolutely you know and you know the last century the previous century in particular saw a complete revolution in our understanding of space time and mass and energy just really fundamental concepts that you know just completely radically changed you know potentially irrevocably yeah, and in some ways like studying this like High level stuff. It makes me miss the you know, quaintness of like <laughs> just doing Newtonian gravity and all that, and that yeah, was it. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's all very nice and just you know explicit. And but I mean, even Newton. So this is something that I don't think a lot of people necessarily know about. Um, but even Newton himself had problems with with gravity. So I mean, he. Okay, so, so Einstein's, one of Einstein's contentions with um, special relativity and Newtonian gravity at the point where he'd already found special relativity but was trying to understand how to incorporate gravity into the picture was imagining that, well, okay, so you know, if you imagine that the sun was to just disappear, then what would happen to the Earth? And so Newton would say, well, if the sun for some reason disappears, then the Earth at that instant of time would just suddenly go careening off. But then Einstein would say, well, hang on, doesn't that seem to show that this sort of gravitational field is, or information about the gravitational field propagates instantaneously everywhere? Um, and so, yeah, that was one thing that kind of um, led Einstein towards thinking about um, what led him to general relativity but actually Newton had this misgiving himself he actually you know thought that it was really strange that you know his theory essentially predicted just just what I was talking about that essentially information could spread through through the gravitational field everywhere instantaneously he actually knew that that was or thought that that was a problem but he never you know he, he, he never addressed that during his life but it's quite interesting to know that essentially that that issue was pointed out actually by Newton himself is that like 
sort of to do with gravitational waves and things, like how the not necessarily. I mean, like, it, it ends up having to do with um, gravitational waves. But I mean, but I mean, the, the, the statement of the problem itself doesn't necessarily rely on um, that doesn't you know predicate the existence of gravitational waves as such. But I guess it just means that. Well, according to the Newtonian perspective, you know, if something happens in the gravitational field somewhere, it affects everywhere else instantaneously. Whereas in the relativistic sense, you would expect that that information has to travel from, you know, between points. And so, yeah, there's a sense in which you're, you sort of have to imagine that there are, if you will, local excitations of the gravitational field, which it turns out gravitational waves are. And indeed, um, if you were to imagine a situation where you just suddenly removed a source, then that would actually create a gravitational wave, and the, gravita- and the influence of that would be propagated by gravitational waves. Mm, I could like snap my fingers and have some huge masses disappear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Such as, you know, uh, politicians that, that we don't like, for example. Well, I don't know if I'd be enough mass. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I think I think we've gone over a fair fair amount there. Um, sure. To to wrap up, I guess we can go for a more light light hearted um, question. You know, like we we see um, a lot of pictures of your cats and stuff in your mm-hmm. your lectures. You know. Yeah, can you tell us more about your cats? Oh, so um, ever since um, I started living with my uh, wife Heidi. Um, back when we were um, we, we weren't weren't even engaged at this point, but she um, she she always wanted us to have a cat or cats, and I was like, oh, well, I've never really had a cat or a dog before. I don't know how I'd cope with it. It sounds like a big responsibility. And she was like, no, go on, let's you know, we'll we'll get one. I was like, okay, you know, we'll we'll maybe get one, but definitely not two. And then she was like. You know, later on, she was like, "No, I think we should get a pair of them. If you get a pair of them, it's probably better." And I was like, "Oh, I really don't know about this." And anyway, we went down to the cat sanctuary a few years ago, and we saw our first two cats, Evie and Ivy, and we pretty much just fell in love with them straight away. <laughs> and we were just like, "Yeah, we'll have them. They're coming home with us." So yeah, that was our first two. And then um, one January, a couple of years later, we'd we'd been humming and hawing as to whether we would get more cats, and we were like, "Well, let's just go down to the cat sanctuary." You know we've been thinking about it and we'll just see and we saw our, our new uh, our, our next two cats Mina and Badger and again we fell in love with them straight away they were the first ones we saw and they came home with us and so there's our, there's our four cats and um, yeah we absolutely love them to bits and I think <laughs> Heidi's created a bit of a monster because I'm absolutely obsessed with my cats and yeah I think they've uh, in terms of my teaching they've been incredibly um, incredibly useful to, to include them just for comic relief and because they're to be honest nowadays they're most of my personality is my cats and so nice have they changed your understanding of physics at all? Um, well, they've helped me develop my students' understanding of physics because they've appeared in numerous um, demonstrations of key concepts in waves and optics. I wonder, like, you know, like the butterfly effect, maybe your cats will lead to some major revolution. Yeah, exactly. That would, <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice to think so. Certainly some of the, some of the acrobatics that they, can perform, uh, that they can perform seem to defy conventional understanding the, the fact that they can just bound you know up to incredible heights with just minimal effort is amazing yeah, definitely need a new theory of gravity for that <laughs> exactly okay now it was very nice having you on the podcast Alex 
Cool. No, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me, and uh, yeah, happy to happy to help. Okay. Bye.